Welcome to the Rebel at Large Adventure Podcast. I'm Drifter. And I'm Gypsy. Talking about ghost towns, graveyards, outlaws, heroes, and ladies of the night. Howdy folks. Thanks for joining us for yet another adventure. Today we're taking you out to the Midwest. We were on a longer adventure at this time, meandering as we tend to do. We made a stop for some provisions and figured we'd see what was in the area. We happened to find a historic landmark nearby, complete with cabins and graves. All the things that draw us right in. So, Gypsy was doing some reading and researching for this episode, taking notes along the way. She got about halfway through and realized that this is going to be a pretty long one. (laughs) So, we're breaking this into two episodes for you. Yeah, to give you a a moment in between them. This is kind of a heavier episode i think that we've done yeah i think so i I guess the borkstrom brothers was pretty heavy too so right um well today we're excited to share with you the story of abby gardner and the spirit lake massacre that happened in iowa spirit lake sits on the northern part of iowa very close to minnesota's state border and is in the western shore of east okaboji lake If you were to visit the area today, it would look nothing like it did back when Abby Gardner and her family moved to the area. No Walmarts. No. (laughs) Nope. No cell boats. No. Mm. None of that. Um, Before we get into what happened at Spirit Lake, let's tell you about Abby Gardner and her family. So Roland Gardner was born in New Haven, Connecticut in 1815. When he was a teenager, he started working at a comb manufacturing company. He quickly found out that this was not the life he wanted to live and set out for new adventures. He secured himself a plot of land in New York, and on March 22nd of 1836, he was married to Francis M. Smith. We have no idea how the two of them Mm -hmm. met. Probably at a square dance. A barnyard dance or whatever they call them. (laughs) Yeah, in New York. That's probably it. Uh, The couple had four children. Mary M. was born in 1837. Eliza M., a lot of M's going on here, probably <laughs> after the mom's M. Uh, Eliza M., born in, ni- in 1839. Abigail, born in 1843. No and M. Yeah, no M. <laughs> and Roland, so that would be Junior, born in 1851. Roland's desire to stay in motion did not stop once he started his family, which is kind of surprising, you would think, after you've had four kids, you'd want it to stay put. Mm-hmm. When Abby was young, her family moved to Greenwood, where she was able to grow up and get an education. They then moved to Rexville, which was just a few miles away from Greenwood. In 1851, her oldest sister, Mary, was married to Harvey Luce. Harvey was living in Huron County, Ohio, and after the marriage, Mary and Harvey moved to his hometown. Two years later, the family decided to join Mary in Ohio. They packed up everything that could fit in a wagon and set off. Mary had just had a baby boy, and the family was excited to see him. Once they reached her, the entire family packed up and continued the move out west. Roland and Harvey got jobs working on grading the line for the Lakeshore and Michigan Southern Railroad, and this helped them get enough money to continue on their journey. In the fall of 1854, the family packed up again and started to move farther west. Roland wanted to find a place he could call home in Iowa. He had a sight set. The further west they went, the less and less folks they would run into while on the trail. Sometimes they'd go days before they would even see anybody else. So by October, they had traveled 100 miles west of the Mississippi and were now in a village called Shell Rock. 
With winter quickly approaching, the decision was made to stay in that area until next spring. The following spring, Roland had found the new location he wanted his family to live, and that was Clear Lake. In March 1855, the family loaded up their supplies again and made their way farther west. Abby would have been around 12 at this time. I Google mapped their travel, and in all, they would have walked around a 1,000 miles in two years, and that is if they closely followed the roads that Google Maps took me on. It's not going to take you maybe the route they went, but it would be kind of close, I would think. Hmm. While in Clear Lake, Abby and her family started seeing Native Americans for the first time. So prior to the family arriving in Clear Lake, the area was set aside as neutral ground when the government and the Native Americans came to an agreement. In 1851, Joseph Nua and James Dickerson moved to the area with their families and began to settle there as well. Before more settlers moved to the area, the two men had a scary encounter with the Sioux tribe. Mr. Nua had befriended the Winnebagos prior to moving to Clear Lake. They found out he was now living in Clear Lake and the Winnebagos moved to live by him. One day, a 16-year-old Winnebago boy was out looking for one of Mr. Newitt's cows. The Sioux were hiding in the bushes and shot the young man. They then proceeded to cut his head off and take it to their campsite. The Winnebagos were fearful that the Sioux would come back for them and went to Mr. Newitt for help. In the middle of the night, he loaded up the tribe in his wagon and had his driver take them away. The next morning, roughly 500 Sioux returned. Mr. Newitt, with the help of Mr. Dickinson, walked out of the cabin waving a white flag. The Sioux asked where the Winnebagans had gone, and they were told the tribe had left the area. They did not believe Mr. Newitt and wanted to come search the home. They were told to leave their guns in the field, and the two would put their guns outside of the cabin. So the Sioux entered the cabin and looked in every area of the house, trying to find the Winnebagos. When they found the cabin was empty, they walked out lifted up their blankets, and revealed they each had a loaded revolver hidden on them, making clear their intention to kill the Winnebagas as well as Mr. Nua and Mr. Dickerson. Luckily, the men were able to escape death, but the story was told to Abby and her family once they arrived at Clear Lake. The family had been living in the area for a few months before they saw their first tribe of Native Americans. It was common that once a tribe set up camp near a settlement, they would set out and start begging for supplies and food. They would travel in groups to each house and push their way inside. They would then force the owners to give them whatever they wanted or they wouldn't leave. It was during this time Abby saw her first Native American. The Gardner family stayed living in Clear Lake for 16 months before they packed up and moved again. (laughs) On the road again. I just can't wait to get on the road again. So this time the family had a new addition with them. Mary had a second child while living in Clear Lake. Albert was now four and Amanda was one. On July 16, 1856, the family arrived at their new destination, Spirit Lake. They had traveled for over a 100 miles crossing through terrain that had never before been traveled on by wagon. The Gardner family were some of the first white folks to settle the area. The natives called this area Minnewaukan, meaning spirit water. They protected the lake and believed its waters were haunted by spirits. They believed this was a dwelling place for gods and wouldn't even put a canoe into the water. Yeah, that was that special to them. No fishing, no hunting in the area. Sacred ground. Yep. The family soon found that down the shore from them where four white men had set up camp in the area. William and Carl Granger were brothers. Bertel A. Snyder and Dr. I.H. Harriet. 
the four men and the Gardner family quickly got to work building houses for them. Roland and Harvey Luce, Mary's husband, were able to build one house for the entire family before winter started to arrive. Harvey had started on the second cabin, but it was too late, so they kind of abandoned that Mm -hmm. and left a half-built cabin there. Uh, Word got around the area, and soon more white settlers began arriving and building cabins as well. By the time winter arrived, roughly 40 people were living in the area. The next closest town to them was Springfield, which is now Jackson. It was 18 miles north of the lake. In order to get supplies, they would have to travel around 100 miles to Fort Dodge. That's a bit of a trek, going to the big city. Yeah. So Springfield had some supplies, but nothing like the fort would have had. Right. Well, the winter of 1856-57 was brutal and cold. Heavy snow began falling in October, making it near impossible to travel. Eliza, who was 16 at this time, was traveling with a family friend, Dr. Strong, and his wife. They were unable to make it back to Spirit Lake due to the snow, and they had to stay in Springfield. Not only was the weather terrible that winter, but the late arrival to the area for everyone meant there was little to no crops for them to survive the winter on. Not only was the winter weather something the settlers will remember, but this is the winter of the Spirit Lake Massacre. On March 8, 1857, Abby's life changed in a way that she could never have imagined. That morning, the family got up early so Roland could go to Fort Dodge for supplies. As they were sitting down for breakfast, a Native American walked in asking for food. The family quickly made room for him at the table and shared breakfast with him. Some more members of the tribe started to make their way into the house asking for food as well. In all, the family fed over 20 people that morning when they had little to no supplies left for themselves. Once breakfast was over, the men in the tribe started demanding the family give them ammunition and other supplies. As Roland attempted to share a box of ammunition with them, the Native American took the entire box out of his hands. Harvey attempted to stop them from taking the container of black powder, only to be stopped when one of them pulled a gun on him. Around 9 a.m., Dr. Harry and Mr. Snyder stopped by to see if Roland would take some letters with him to Fort Dodge. Roland informed the men that several Native Americans were in the house and that he was not going to leave his family alone with them. He then told the men to warn the other settlers of what was going on so they could prepare themselves if the tribe came to their house. The Native Americans stayed around the house looking for anything they wanted until about noon when they let the family's herd of cattle go and they started to shoot them dead as they rode off to the next house. With the tribe out of the house, the family made the decision that Harvey Luce and Mr. Clark would ride out to warn the other settlers. About an hour later, the family heard shots fired in the distance. They sounded like they came from the area of Mr. Maddox's cabin. Unsure of what to do, they continued to wait for Harvey and Mr. Clark to return. A few hours later, Roland stepped outside to see if he could see the men returning. He quickly turned back into the house, saying, Nine Indians are coming, now only a short distance from the house, and we are all doomed to die. (laughs) As the nine men entered the house, they demanded more supplies from the family. As Roland turned to get him the supplies, they shot him in the back killing him while the family watched in horror. Next, one of them pulled a gun on Francis and Mary. The women reached out and tried to knock the gun out of their hands, only to have another Native American hit him over the head with the butt of their guns. The men then dragged the two women out of the house and beat them to death with rocks, sticks, and again the butts of their guns. The tribe didn't stop there. After the gals were killed, 
They came back into the house to get to the rest of them. Abby, who was only 13 years old, was sitting in a chair holding baby Amanda, age one. Albert, age four, was on one side of her, and her little brother Roland, age six, was on the other side of her. The two little boys holding on to her fearful of what might happen. The tribe set to work destroying everything inside the house, taking anything they wanted to keep out to the rest of the tribe. They then took the children from Abby, one by one, and dragged them outside. As the children screamed for her to help them, there was nothing she could do. The men began beating the three children until they were dead. Abby was now alone. She wanted to die, but the tribe had a different idea for her. They took her by the arm and forced her out of the house. She was now their captive. As the Native Americans led her away from her dead family and house, she noticed that her mother's scalp was hanging from the belt of one of the Native Americans. And that's just as terrible to me to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's left of your mother's hanging right there where they're taking you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, crazy. Well, as the tribe traveled on foot with Abby in tow, they reached the cabin of Mr. Maddock about a mile away. She was then greeted with another horrific sight when she arrived. The Native Americans had killed Dr. Harriet and Mr. Snyder when they went to help Mr. Maddock protect him and his family. Mr. Maddock and his entire family was not only killed, but the tribe locked some of the family members in the house and set it on fire, forcing them to be burned alive. In all, the Native Americans had killed 20 folks that day, but they weren't done. This was just the start of the rampage the tribe was about to inflict on the settlers in the area. They were pissed. Yeah. The whites living in the area were miles away from each other. They didn't have house phones or cell phones, and they had no way of communicating danger to the rest of them in the area. No Facebook, guys. This Mm -hmm. is very primitive times. (laughs) The following morning, March 9th, the tribe set out to wreak havoc on more of the settlers. Mr. Howe was killed on his way to the gardener house. They not only killed him, but they cut his head off, and it was not found until years later. Somebody pull it up on a fishing hook? Yeah, it was like found along the shoreline. Mm. Um, And then they kind of rejoined his body with his head. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) They then went to Mr. Howe's house and killed the rest of the family. From there, they traveled to the cabin Mr. Noble and Mr. Thatcher shared. After killing the two men, the Native Americans took the two children, one of them two years old, and the other was seven months old from their mother's arms. They dragged them outside and proceeded to swing them around, bashing their heads on a tree. Miss Lydia Noble, age 21, and Miss Elizabeth Thatcher, age 19, were then taken captive with Abby. Well, to make matters even worse for Lydia, when the tribe made their way back to camp, they stopped back off at Mr. Howe's house. That's very ZZ Top, a how how. <laughs> the Howe's were her parents, and she had to witness the terrible scene of seeing her father dead, her mother's head beaten in, and her brother barely hanging on for life. The natives were not about to leave anyone alive at the house, and when they discovered he was still alive, they finished off their terrible deed while Lydia watched. Once the Native Americans were finished, the death toll was a total of 12 for the day. They then brought the two women back to camp and put them in a tent with Abby. They were able to spend some time together talking about what had just happened before they were forced into separate tents and told to put their hair in braids and to paint their faces to look like the Natives. The next two days, the tribe traveled around 10 miles. They were unaware that there were still more whites living in the area. 
On March 13th, they discovered the cabin of William Marble. The family had no idea what the Native Americans had done in the area and allowed them into the cabin to share a meal with them. After eating their food, they talked William into trading rifles with them and then challenged him to a target shootout. As William was setting up the target, the tribe began to shoot him in the back. His wife, Margaret, age 20, witnessed the entire thing. She tried to run away, but the Native Americans captured her and held her as one of their captives. Still rampaging. Yeah. As Abby, Elizabeth, Lydia, and Margaret were now being held captive by the tribe and forced to travel on foot through several feet of snow, Mr. Markham was on his way back to the gardener cabin. He was at Fort Dodge getting supplies and was delayed when his ox were too tired to push on. On the evening of March 9th, he arrived at the gardener cabin only to discover the lifeless bodies of Francis and Mary out front. He knew this was the work of the Native Americans and went to Mr. Maddox's house for help. As he approached the house, he found himself close to the campsite of the tribe and slowly backed away. He next went to Mr. Howe, only to find the family had suffered the same fate. His last attempt to find help was at the Noble and Thatcher cabin. He was surprised to find they too were dead. His next option was to travel to Springfield, where he knew more whites were living and hoped that they were all okay. He was elated to find the town had not suffered like his friends in Spirit Lake had. When he found Eliza, Abby's sister, he informed her that her family was killed, but that Abby might still be alive as he did not see her body. When word got around town of the murders at Spirit Lake, the town folk in Springfield quickly got to work trying to do whatever they could to protect themselves if the tribe was to make their way into town. Henry Tretz and Mr. Sheffin were sent to Fort Ridgely to petition the United States to send troops to their rescue. William and George Wood owned a store in town, and they weren't afraid of the tribe. The year prior, they had traded goods with them, and they felt like the Native Americans could be trusted. On March 20th, two suspicious Native Americans came into the store and purchased a keg of powder, bullets, lead, and other trinkets. Little did they know that in a few days, the supplies they had sold to these two would be used to kill them. So over the next 13 days, the tribe traveled 15 miles. They camped at one spot no more than two nights before moving on to the next spot. On March 26th, they arrived two miles outside of Springfield. Here, the tribe prepared themselves for battle once again. In the meantime, the town folk had barricaded themselves into a house anxiously awaiting the arrival of the tribe. For 17 days, they awaited the murderers only to have no one show up. They began to let their guard down, thinking nothing's going to happen now. Little did they know the tribe was preparing to attack. So that afternoon, an eight-year-old child was out playing in the front of the yard of the house they were hiding in. He yelled for them, saying, Henry's coming. Some of the people from the house came out to see if it was the two men they had sent to Fort Ridgely returning with soldiers. They had no idea the natives had dressed themselves in white people's clothing. Kind of terrible of them to do that. Incognito. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As they exited the house, the natives began to fire at them, killing the eight-year-old boy They wounded two men and two women before they were able to get safely back into the house. So the men inside the cabin began to fire at the natives while shots were being fired back at them. Eliza, Abby's sister, was in the cabin with them and she didn't even hesitate to get in and help by handing the men bullets. Another woman in the house, Miss Louisa Church, grabbed one of the guns and started firing shots at the natives as well. 
Everyone that was inside the cabin that was able to help was doing everything they could to fight them off. By nightfall, the natives had given up and moved into town to see if there was anyone they could kill there. In the book that I read, it said that Miss Church actually killed one of the natives. Oh, yeah? She was shooting through the porthole of the house. Nice. Yeah, I was like, yeah, you go, lady. (laughs) (laughs) William and George Wood, thinking the natives were friendly, were unfortunately killed. Not only did they kill them, but they went so far as to set both of them on fire. They then went to Mr. Stewart's house and killed him, his wife, and their two younger children. Their oldest son, Johnny, was able to get away, and he was able to hide. After some time, he felt it was safe to come out. As he made his way to Mr. Wheeler's cabin, he could hear voices and was worried it might be more natives. He then ran to Mr. Thomas's cabin, where the rest of the town folk were hiding. They were elated to see that he was safe and quickly brought him in for protection. Hours had passed with no sign of the natives. The remaining folks felt it was safe for them to start to leave the cabin. It's been a few hours, right? Well, keep in mind they were miles away from any other civilization. It was nighttime, it was cold, and there were still several feet of snow. To top it all off, their horses were taken by the natives, so to travel anywhere meant they're going to have to walk. Though not everyone wanted to leave, it was decided to make the 113-mile trek to Fort Dodge. And again, this is me Google mapping it on a road. So. Right? Yeah. Not an easy adventure, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> well, the group traveled for 18 days before they met a company of volunteers from Fort Dodge. The company was split so they could help the survivors travel the rest of the way to safety. In all, seven folks were killed in Springfield. After the attack on Springfield, the natives packed up camp the next morning to move to their next campsite. Abby and Lydia were forced to carry 70-pound packs. Margaret had a backpack with supplies as well as one of the natives' babies. And I thought it was funny because she said in the book that Margaret kept poking the baby mm-hmm. so that it would cry because she was sick of carrying it. You take your own baby back. And so then the mom came and took the baby, thinking that the baby doesn't like white people. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't like that one. Mm-hmm. That lady keeps poking me, Mom. <laughs> Elizabeth was in too much pain from what Abby called the broken breast. I had read one thing saying they thought it was something, but then I also thought maybe she had mastitis from possibly breastfeeding. So I don't know. What does way. that mean? Um, when you are breastfeeding, you're lactating enough to feed the baby. But then when you stop, your body is still kind of producing it until you kind of dry up, basically. Mm. So that process of like not feeding anymore, it gets very, very painful. She was just too full. Yeah. Kind of like a cow. You're supposed to milk them every day. Mm. <laughs> so I don't know. That's that a good was- analogy. <laughs> <laughs> very medical and yeah. terminology, right? Well, she had a broken <laughs> breast. Just um, like a cow. Yeah. So because of this, she didn't really have to carry much of anything. The woman had to hike through deep snow, crossing freezing cold rivers, chop and carry firewood, and even help hunt dinner. They were pretty much their indentured slaves. Right. Well, the supplies that were stolen from the town folk lasted about a month. Once they were out, 
They took to eating just about anything, according to Abby. This one makes me struggle because she uses words that I don't quite know how to say, so I'll be patient. No, right. <laughs> the Indians have no equal as gourmandizers. They are perfectly devoured of anything like delicacy of appetite or taste or decency in the matter. Every part of an animal is devoured, cooked or raw, clean or unclean. The smaller game is sometimes roasted without opening and if the entrails are taken out, they are thrown on the fire and roasted and eaten by the squaws, this being considered the right of the cook. Animals that have laid dead until putrescence has well begun are devoured with avidity. Two days after the attack on Springfield, the natives saw a group of soldiers approaching their camp. The native women were sent away with the captives while the warriors readied themselves for battle. The soldiers searched the area for a few hours, but they were unable to track where the tribe had gone and turned away. This turned out to be a good thing for the captives, because there was a native standing over them with a gun, waiting to shoot them if they were attacked by the soldiers. After this, the tribe knew they had to get away. For two days, they hiked nonstop using tree branches to cover their tracks. They also said their moccasins helped cover the tracks. Mm -hmm. They set up camp for the night to eat and rest. Over the next six weeks, the tribe walked until they reached the red pipestone quarries. And I have no idea the route they took to get there, but if you Google map it from Springfield to Pipestone, it's roughly 90 miles. Quite a trek. Mm-hmm. And they're headed north, which means it's worse winter weather, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Colder. Yeah. Wind's coming up from the north. is cold. Yeah. Well, this area was well known to all native tribes because the rock found there was easily shaped into pipes, so they would make little smoking pipes. Mm -hmm. They spent a day in the area before they headed to Big Sioux, which is now the town of Floundra. Flandro. Flandro, which uh, if we're saying that wrong, I'm sorry. We were laughing about how we were saying Belfouche wrong, too. Right. (laughs) Well, along the trail to Big Sioux, the tribe and captors were crossing over a pretty sketchy bridge out there. One of the 16-year-old native boys took the backpack that Elizabeth Thatcher was carrying. This was something they had never done, and the captors were a little surprised by this. The boy then urged her across the bridge. Elizabeth, fearing they were going to kill her, said to Abby, If you are so fortunate as to escape, tell my dear husband and parents that I desire to live and escape for their sake. As the women reached the middle of the bridge, Elizabeth's fear came to a reality when the boy that took the bag from her pushed her into the icy cold water. She miraculously stayed afloat and was able to swim to the shore where she was hanging on to a tree root. A group of natives approached her and rather than help her out of the water, they began throwing rocks at her and pushed her back into the water. Elizabeth tried again to save her life by swimming to the other side of the river, only to be met with more natives that, like the last one, started throwing rocks at her as well until she let go and started floating downstream. As she approached another bridge downstream, a native was standing there waiting for her. He pulled out his gun and shot her. Elizabeth's lifeless body floated downstream. Elizabeth's cousin, Lydia Noble, was so upset by this that once they had set up camp, she tried to get Abby to go to the river with her and drown themselves. Abby would not go with her, and Lydia would not go alone. On May 6th, the tribe was camping 30 miles west of the Big Sioux, near Skunk Lake. That night, they were visited by two Sioux brothers, one by the name of Magbiyaha Hotan and Sihahata. 
Sorry. Good job. Yeah, destroyed them. But <laughs> that's kind of how they're pronounced out. Yeah. Well, they spent the evening with them listening to the tribe tell their stories of what happened back at Spirit Lake. After the storytelling, the two men tried to make a trade for Abby, but was told that she wasn't for sale. The chief told him they could trade for Margaret Marble. You want Margaret? <laughs> Not Abby. You can have Margaret. They uh, offered Lydia mm -hmm. before Margaret, but they didn't want her because they said that she was like a she looked like she was from German stock or something like that. Oh. <laughs> no, she's too big boned. <laughs> so on. then they're like, "We'll take Margaret." <laughs> well, before Margaret left, she told Abby that she believed the men that purchased her were going to take her back to the Whites for safety. And when she did make it, she would do everything in her power to rescue Abby and Lydia. That night, Abby watched Margaret walk away, leaving her and Lydia with the natives. The two natives left as quickly as they could before the chief could change his mind. Which is smart. Yeah, didn't want to get stuck with Lydia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was the reason, oh. but I like it. <laughs> well, Margaret safely made her way to the Yellow Medicine Reservation, where she was taken care of and fed a decent meal for the first time since she was captured. A few weeks passed before Stephen R. Riggs and Dr. Thomas S. Williamson arrived from Hazenwood to claim her. Hazelwood? Hazelwood. You're right. Well, the two men that saved her were paid $500 each for their efforts. That's about seventeen grand today. Not too bad. And then Margaret was taken to St. Paul where she was safe and free now. Well, four weeks after Margaret was purchased and rescued from the tribe, another tribe joined them. An agreement was made to sell both of the gals to the new tribe, but this time they didn't leave right away after the purchase. Rather, they stayed and treated the two gals just like their last captor, the only difference being they were allowed to sleep in a teepee together. One night after Abby and Lydia had laid down for bed, one of the chief's sons, Roaring Cloud, came into the teepee and demanded Lydia to get out. So Roaring Cloud is the son of the original person that captured her. Okay. And we're not talking about them right now because the next episode is going to be all about them. So, right. um, So he demanded Lydia to get out. She refused to leave and this upset Roaring Cloud. He grabbed her by the arm and with the other hand, he grabbed a log of wood. He then dragged Lydia out of the tent and began to beat her. He hit her three times, but it was too much for her to bear. Roaring Cloud came back in the teepee, washed the blood off his hands, and laid down to sleep. Lydia lay helpless outside of the tent, moaning in pain for 30 or so minutes. No one came to help her, and Abby could do nothing for her. To make matters worse, the next morning the warrior started using her lifeless body as a target to shoot at and forced Abby to watch. They then cut off her braided hair and gave it to one of the young boys. And this is terrible. During the hike to the next camp spot, the boy would run up to Abby and hit her in the face with Lydia's hair. That's pretty fucked up. Mm-hmm. And what's even worse is this: they had already made a deal to sell these two gals. Yeah. And then Chief's son comes in and just kills one of them. It's like, you just cut our profits in half. Right. And, like, for me, I would think if I was the chief that had just purchased them mm -hmm. from this guy and then that guy's son comes and kills him. I'd be taking the son. I, exactly. Like, I'd be pissed. Mm -hmm. But they also held the white man's life at such a small value. Yeah. They're just dogs. Yeah. Well, a few days after Lydia's murder, the tribe had reached the banks of the James River. 
Here, there was a large camp of Yanktons, a powerful branch of the Sioux Nation. Abby was one of the first white folks to enter the camp, and the natives were drawn to her. They would all take turns coming up to her teepee just so they could get a look at her. It's like a circus act. Yeah. I thought she should be charging them like a penny. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe she had a beard. A button. Go see for... the bearded lady. <laughs> On May 30th, things would change for Abby, and this time for the good. Three natives dressed in white men's clothing arrived at the camp. They spent three days negotiating the purchase of Abby. Evidently, the previous guy didn't want her after the yeah. her companion was slaughtered by the chief's son. <laughs> Said, ah, we don't have a deal anymore. Yeah. Well, the final cost for her to be released to them was two horses, 12 blankets, two powder kegs, 20 pounds of tobacco, 32 yards of blue cloth, and 37 yards of calico. And my inflation calculator could not translate that, so I don't know what that value might be today. <laughs> We'll say that maybe it was like a team of horses. In today's dollars, <laughs> it would be 37 horses. 60 blankets. <laughs> I don't know. Powder kegs. <laughs> anyway. All the pounds of tobacco. <laughs> Too many yards of blue calico. <laughs> okay, so Abby's new owners were by names far too difficult for us to pronounce. However, their names translate to Man Who Shoots Metal As He Walks, or John Otherday, his partner, Beautiful Voice, and last companion, Iron Hawk. The next day after she was purchased, they traveled 10 days to Yellow Medicine Agency to the mission of Dr. Thomas S. Williamson. Once they reached the area, one of the Yankton natives that traveled with Abby presented her with an Indian war cap. The Yankton was ordered by the chief to present it to her once they arrived at the abode of the whites. The cap was made of finely dressed buckskin, soft and light. Around this was a crest of 36 very large eagle feathers, the quills being set at an utmost exactness as to form a true circle, wider at the top than at the base. Around the crest, the cap was covered with weasel fur, white as ermine, while the tails of the weasels, equal as white, hung as pendants all around except the front. She was told it was a token of respect for the fortitude and bravery that she manifested, and it was because of this that she was not killed. They also told her that as long as she owned this cap, she would be under the protection of all the Dakotas. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, in the book, she talked about how each of those eagle feathers, the natives would get them once they had basically killed somebody. Mm -hmm. And so the chief giving it to her, that would have meant he would have killed, what was it say, 35? 36. 36 people. Mm -hmm. yep. Well, from Yellow Medicine Agency, Abby was transported by wagon to Fort Ridgely. Her three rescuers stayed by her side to make sure she arrived safely. And to get the reward money. She definitely needed to be safe for that. I know. I didn't put it in here, but those three guys, they each got $400 a piece. Mm -hmm. And then they also got like a, what, what do you call that when somebody writes like a letter saying, I promise to pay you this much money later? A check? No, not a check, but like a, a promissory contract. Promissory note? Yeah. They got a promissory note that they would get more money later. Mm -hmm. So. That's awesome. So probably closer to fifteen grand. That five hundred was seventeen grand, so maybe mm -hmm. thirteen. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. The group spent time with Captain Bernard Elliott B. Jr. and his wife. 
Ms. B gave Abby several gold dollars and Lieutenant Alexander Murray bought her a shawl and material for a dress. While Abby was under control of her captors, she was forced to wear the natives' clothes and change her hair to look more like them. This was the first white folks' clothing she had seen in several months. The group then traveled to Traverse, where they boarded a steamboat headed to St. Paul. They arrived at 6 p.m. on June 22, 1857. Everyone in town knew she was arriving, and they were gathered around to greet her and welcome her back. The following morning, Abby was delivered to Governor Samuel Medry. From St. Paul, Abby, Governor Medry, and his men took a steamboat to Dubuque, Iowa. Abby then took a wagon to Fort Dodge, where she waited for her sister's new husband, William Williamson, to pick her up. On July 5th, Abby was reunited with her only living relative, Eliza. For roughly four months, 13-year-old Abby was away from her sister. She witnessed her family and several town folks murdered and was treated terribly while under the control of the tribe. She was now free. What a sigh of relief for her, huh? Yeah, no shit. <laughs> Alrighty, folks. Well, this is a pretty good spot to stop. Uh, we'll change gears a bit for the next episode and talk about the location we visited as well as those responsible for the massacre. Mm-hmm. So even though we've been able to joke a little bit during the episode, it's still a pretty heavy one. Yeah. And so do you have a dad joke to lighten it up for I us do. a little bit? I do have one. Oh, good. Okay. Are you ready? Sure. Oh, I thought you were getting like your laugh track ready. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So an idiot fell into a vat of beer at the brewery today and drowned. How do you know he was an idiot? He got out twice to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I thought that was funny and fun. All right. <laughs> and I don't have to explain it to you. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it, folks. That's uh, part one of two. Uh, we'll have the second part out here for you shortly. Yeah. yeah we're going to record that soon. We won't make you wait for the full two weeks. So. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, we'd like to thank you all again for your continued support. If you'd like to follow along on our adventures, we're most active on the Instagram. At Rebel at Large. Uh, we post pictures relating to our episodes on our website. Rebelatlarge.com, where you'll find links to our new merch store, Patreon, email, and other social deals. Yeah, we'll talk to you all here right quick with part two. Yes, safe travels. We'll see you all down the road. Can you say the name again? Can you hear Marley snoring in the back there? <laughs> okay. And they were elated to see that he was safe and... Did you hear that sound? What was that? My mouth made that. They were... <laughs>
<clears throat> Didn't have a voice there. <clears throat> he grabbed her by the arm, and with the other hand, he grabbed a leg. A, a leg. Around the crest, the cap was covered with weasel fur. Easel foot? I did have easel foot in there. <laughs> I'll start that over. No idea where I was. Stop here. <laughs> Marley's ready. Oh, good. Oh, sorry. There's that. Can you beep that out? Yeah. Okay.